Welcome to Temple of Health Radio Show. This is Dr. Susan Kolb, and today I'm pleased to have as my guest Anne Ziegenhorn, who is the author of Perfection, A True Life Story, Sometimes Perfection Isn't the Truth at All. Um, Anne uh, and, and I have, a, I guess, a professional relationship in that I became her surgeon. Um, but we're going to talk about Anne's story and how she uh, came to discover what was making her ill and then how she came to write the book Perfection. Welcome, Anne. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on here. And hello to everybody out there. So, Anne, would you tell them a little bit about your um, background and how you uh, came to get breast implants? Uh, sure. Um, I, um, from, from a young age, have always been, for whatever reason, loved beauty. Um, I loved putting makeup on my mother as I grew up. I loved um, fixing her hair, making her look pretty. And ultimately, when I was in high school, I started modeling. And with the modeling, I then also decided I wanted to become a cosmetologist and get in the beauty industry. Then, as I was working at a skincare salon, two doors over from us was a plastic surgeon's office. And his um, surgical nurses would come in all the time for, you know, different little treatments, whether it be a facial, eyebrow wax, or lash dye. And we would just chit-chat. And, of course, they, they were in tip-top shape and looked beautiful. And I was like, golly, you know, they're so, so pretty. And I was noticing in my photos, because I had one breast a size A, almost B, and the other breast was a full B, I started noticing that you could tell in my photographs. So I kept in my mind was like, gosh, you know, if I could afford to get breast implants. Then one day one of the nurses uh, came down and said, hey, I know you've been wanting to get a breast augmentation. His maid is leaving town and he needs somebody to clean his house. And we always have her come on Mondays because he's here at the office and then that way you can just do the house that day. So I thought that was a great idea because she said, we'll trade you out, you clean his house, and he'll give you your breast augmentation. So, of course, at a young age, I'm sitting there thinking, that's a great deal. And right. we went ahead and started the trade-off there. And shortly, we noticed that um, one of the scrub techs, she was getting ready to get married, and she ended up deciding to leave. And I guess, I don't know what happened, but she basically just left with no notice. And they had a surgery scheduled. So they came down to the salon that I work at and said, can Ann please come down and do the surgery so we don't have to cancel it? And you'll, she'll just be the non-sterile person. And so my boss said, sure, that's fine. And I went in and helped with the surgery and just, you know, they told me what to do. And I just monitored stuff. I handed the doctor stuff um, from, you know, I would open up the package, keep it sterile, drop it, and then they would pick it up with their gloves on. And I was just like, wow, this is pretty neat. Well, they couldn't find anybody right away, so they ended up asking me if I wanted to come in to the office on Mondays because Mondays the salon was closed, and I started doing that, and then I ultimately ended up leaving the salon and going to work there full-time. So that's how I got the implants and uh, started working in the plastic surgery office. So um, when was the first time you noticed that uh, your health wasn't as good as it was before the implant? And that's kind of a tricky question. 
Um, and I think anybody who has breast implants that has gone through all this would probably agree. We didn't really know what we were experiencing in the beginning was attributed to our implants. It was, for me personally, I did not ever suspect it was my implants, did not know it was my implants because of how I was trained and indoctrined to believe that they were safe and studied mm -hmm. until it physically ruptured. So once it right. ruptured, and at that point I'm so sick and a doctor had mentioned me, you know, possibly only having two weeks left to live and being in a coma. And, you know, we're sitting there going, what? But then it, it ruptured. And it was once it ruptured is when things started clicking with me. Mm -hmm. I was so sick and I couldn't talk and some days couldn't even walk. Some days my muscles wouldn't cooperate at all that I just lived in my brain. My brain functioned fine as far as my thought process. I could think as fast as I'm talking to you now. Mm -hmm. The problem was, is my brain wasn't, the signals weren't connecting. So my brain was not telling me, move your arm or leg, speak, talk. Mm -hmm. It wasn't doing that. Um, so that was the hardest part, but my brain was functioning fine. So I lived in my brain trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And when the implant ruptured is when I got the epiphany of, oh my gosh, I think this is what's making me sick, but I don't know what. Well, I think so that I, if yeah, I think that if implants were to deflate completely when they got in trouble, um, most people would know that they needed to be changed out. And then if something did happen, like mold growing in the implant because the patient left it in, then you know that would be more on the patient than on the company. But the problem with these implants are that they they partially deflate, and you don't know they're deflated. Um, yes. Um, mine didn't, mine wasn't even partially deflated. Mine, in what it appears like on my mammograms, it appears that it stayed full the whole time, but mm -hmm. in still photos of my mammograms, you can see something sucking into my implant. You can see, they caught it on camera, on my actual mm -hmm. mammal films, you can see something blowing in. So if you, you know, if you're, if you're in a child's book and you're seeing like the, the snowflake blowing a puff of cold air and it has like the little streaks and then a cloud mm -hmm. of puff, that's what it looks like on my mammogram. You can see something sucking into my implant for years. And then in a couple of shots, you see the implant blowing something out. It's very interesting to look at my mammograms. But that still had to be a valve defect. Oh, I agree. Yes, definitely a yeah. defect um, yeah. with the valve, um, in my opinion. And it's just one of those things where if, yeah, if it collapsed immediately, we would have known to mm -hmm. do something. And then I wouldn't, I, I would, uh, my opinion is that I wouldn't have gotten so sick because I wouldn't right. have had all the organisms that were in it growing. Right. So describe a little bit about the illness. Um, it, I know a lot of it was neurological because the biotoxin from mold is a is a um, is a neurotoxin. Uh, mm -hmm. But what are some of the other immune and endocrine problems? I ended up. Um, it goes it goes back to some of the things just not knowing it could have been related to my breast implants. 
Um, mm-hmm. I had cysts grown on my ovaries. I had some miscarriages. I, um, as it, it seems to me more towards the, more towards the 2010 kind of when the when the ultimate thing started where they just were compiling everything started Mm -hmm. compiling and they were coming on quicker and quicker and so many things happening to me that's when my immune system um so they had done a complete hysterectomy by that point they just gave me a complete hysterectomy they could not get my hormones in sync at all they kept trying and trying put me on testosterone progesterone estrogen estradiol blah 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 could not get me regulated. Mm. Then as I kept gaining weight and my vision was going bad, the eye doctor is the one who said, oh, you have Graves' disease. And being from the medical field and having a dental hygiene degree, and we have to pay attention to medications that patients take, I knew that Graves' disease meant I was hyper, and hyper people usually are thinner because they're in hyperactive state. Their metabolism is very fast. Right. And I did stay slender up until this point that I started gaining the weight. Um, so I was like, why? why am, no, there's no way I have graves because I'd be losing weight, not gaining. Right. And then yeah. the doctor said, just go see your general practitioner. So they tested me and said, not only do you have graves disease, we found a mass on your gallbladder. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. And they're like, you need to get that taken care of. So the surgeons didn't want to touch me because my the type of graves that I had affected if they were to put me to sleep. Um, they mm-hmm. said, you know, there's a chance you could die if we put you to sleep because you can have a heart attack. There's no way that we can do anything with you right now with as hyper as you are. Mm-hmm. I didn't have heart palpitations or anything. I'm sitting there mm-hmm. thinking, gosh, they make this sound so grim, but I don't feel like that's my problem. Right. And so that was the hardest part for me to understand. Well, let me back up a minute and explain to the audience where your symptoms are coming from. The biotoxin from mold, and mold was ultimately found inside the implants, probably along with some bacteria. But um, mold produces the biotoxins. It's a neurotoxin, and the optic nerve is a nerve. And if the implant is on the right side only, it's uh, contaminated with mold, only the right right eye will be infected. But if both implants are affected, then both eyes are affected. And it's blurred vision. It comes and goes, and there's no there's no reason for it. So the eye doctors are kind of confused by it. Yours attributed yours to Graves, but that was probably not correct. It was probably due to the biotoxin. Then the weight gain is due to leptin receptors being damaged in the hypothalamus. Most of the endocrine disorders in the hypothalamus. So um, patients typically gain weight, and they gain weight without eating more. And then their um, thyroid uh, function goes down, not because of anything going on in the thyroid itself, but because of what's going on in the hypothalamus. So thyroid function goes down, and uh, sex hormones get all screwed up. They go, they go down. And then ADH goes down, so you drink and pee all the time. And then adrenal hormones go down, so you're f- fatigued all the time. So that's the endocrine disorder that stems from the hypothalamus. Now, Graves' disease, I've seen it in some patients. It can occur. But it's not necessarily a, you know, a hallmark of um, mold uh, biotoxins uh, uh, that we know of. But Graves' disease can occur because you're stressed out, and you certainly were stressed out. So that that can also be, you know, just emotional stress can cause is associated with Graves' disease. 
And that explains a lot. And that's exactly <laughs> what you just said is exactly what was happening to my whole system. Right. Um, especially the, um, we, and a lot of people, I don't know, do you have those, those women who's like, I, I dread sex? Well, I didn't. I was the opposite. I was mm-hmm. very in tune with my body. I enjoyed sex. And for me not to want to have sex was very hard for my husband to understand. <laughs> and that's a testosterone deficiency. Yeah. yeah t- oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And the problem is it's very, very difficult to regulate. It's not like you just give people hormones. Um, it, there's there's waxing and waning in the biotoxin levels, so um, it's not like a steady problem. It goes up and down, up and down. So an endocrinologist who's trying to treat it ha- has a lot of trouble treating it. That, that Does that... Um, explain some of the things that happened, including the thyroid. It can be very difficult to treat the thyroid. Oh, they they had not had me. Matter of fact, it was only this year, and I was explanted with you October 31st, 2013. Mm-hmm. This year, this spring is when my thyroid finally got regulated. Thyroid yep. and testosterone levels. Yeah. It can take a while because, um, well, I know we had a lot of problems in you with your elevated liver function test. So we weren't able to yes. do antifungals like um, I normally do. We did them, but they were they were late, intermittent, you know, not not as right. uh, regular. Usually, because the mold develops resistance, we have to, and it's mold spores, so it's very very, um, I guess, hardy. So mold spores have to be treated um, with different antifungals rotating, and um, you know, when you give the antifungal and the liver function goes up, then you have to stop the antifungal and, you, you know, you go backward again. So that's mm-hmm. that's a problem with mold. Um, the immune system, it's interesting. The, the fungus is very, very smart. This is both yeast and mold. Um, produces uh, a T-cell problem. And T-cell deficiencies cause um, problems with yeast and mold viruses, parasites, and intracellular infections. So it's it's extensive, also increased risk of cancer. So um, the immune deficiency is, is quite serious. And um, that that is a lot of the illness right there because you get co-infections with viruses, especially herpes and Epstein-Barr, and you get other intracellular infections. We have all sorts of strange intracellular. I, I was treating a, an unknown intracellular infection that look like limes but didn't test for limes and about a year ago they discovered what it was it, it, it it's actually a type of borrelia that um i don't know that if you can test for it now but they've discovered it scientists have discovered it exists and so we were treating this unknown spirochete in in breast implant uh women years ago before it was ever discovered because it was um it was rampant in in the population and intracellular infections can be very, very difficult to treat. Oh yes, it's it's been a it's been a crazy crazy ride for sure. And yeah. any for those women who get better right away, that's that's great. I think that the more knowledge that we've been all sharing mm-hmm. on Facebook and bringing it back to the forefront from where it had kind of went dull and not really talked about as much. I think when we started talking more about it, women are now putting the pieces together a lot sooner and their implants aren't in as long when they're realizing, oh my goodness, I got implants and that's when all my problems started. 
and they're putting the pieces together. So it seems like they're getting better quicker than those of us who had them for years and years and years. That's true. It, the longer you have the problem, the the longer it takes to recover, and the more likely you are to have co-infections and other complicating factors that even though you might get better, you're not getting totally well because those complicating factors aren't being diagnosed and treated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I know a lot of us are very thankful that we have a doctor like you who has the knowledge to put the pieces together to help bring it forth so that you're helping treat the whole patient. You're not just treating, let me take your implants out and then, okay, I got your implants out, you'll get better soon. You actually do the treatment with us. And and that, to me, speaks volumes. And, and I know some other doctors are starting to come on board with that, but it seems like you've been the trendsetter with that. And so I know we all appreciate that. Well, yeah, the problem is that I had to get my boards in integrative holistic medicine in order to understand detoxification and, you know, functional medicine which is so important for detoxification because of the neurotoxins, the chemical neurotoxins and the um, and the uh, silicone, which produces autoimmune disease through the adjuvant effect, as well as um, like methylethyl ketone can deplete nitric oxide in some people with certain detoxification defects and lead to Raynaud syndrome. So all of these different things that you see with the patients, if you don't do a chemical and silicone detox, and including heavy metal detox, I wanted to mention that um, the majority of women who get sick from silicone, I believe, have detoxification defects. There's about 30% of the population that have MTHFR and COMT and other detoxification defects where they can't sulfonate or methylate chemicals to get them out of the system. And when these implants start to leak, either after trauma or at 8 to 10 years when the shell starts to get leaky, they get ill with um, with a fibromyalgia and sometimes autoimmune-type disease. And if you don't go ahead and um, detox them, then they have an increased risk of neurological problems as well as cancer because a lot of the chemicals are carcinogens. And, um, you know, basically the... So you still have the high risk of all of that if you don't do the detox. Mm -hmm. And um, silicone detox is not well understood because most of the chemicals uh, that we're trying to detox are hydrophobic chemicals, not hydrophilic chemicals. Hydrophilic means they dissolve in water, so you can get them out with, say, the ionic foot baths and a lot of the supplements that we give. Um, But hydrophobic can't be gotten out in any way other than... um, uh, uh, saunas or um, electrolysis foot bath, which um, is it, they're just a lot more difficult to get out because they dissolve in fat, not in water. So mm. they tend to stay in the body. So that, and then the silicone, yeah, the silicone is hard to get out too. It's um, oh, yeah. it's very very hard to get out. We use liquid needle body soaks and inositol and. Um, surgery mostly uh, to try to get it out if it's gathered up somewhere in the body. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, there's a lot There's a lot to this that um, people need to be aware of and try to at least grasp some, some of it. I just, um, I just hope and pray that the information that we've all been sharing is getting through. And for some people, I think it is, especially doctors. I think a lot of doctors are starting to realize it more and more. I just wish it, I wish they'd take it more serious. Well, I think the problem with doctors is that they're not trained. Um, 
regular medical doctors aren't trained in detoxification and even in the science of um, you know the chemicals and the and the uh, mold disease, which doesn't exist in regular medicine. They don't even believe in yeast, which is hard to believe because you can look in somebody's mouth and see yeast in their back of their throat and their and their tongue and their in their vagina, you know. But they say yeast doesn't exist either. It's hilarious. <laughs> so um, that's a problem. So you really need to get uh, integrate a holistic doctor who understands how to treat the co-infections, including the intracellular and understands detoxification. And um, then a lot of the surgeons aren't doing the correct surgery either. They're leaving the capsules in because it's too hard to get them out or leaving parts of them in. They say it's too dangerous, which I don't believe it is. I just think they don't want to take the time. And they often leave uh, a bunch of lymph nodes that are filled with silicone in the axilla, which continue to cause problems for people with you know silicone. If you have... Enlarged lymph nodes with saline, it's usually mold, and you don't remove them. You, all you do is treat with the antifungals to get rid of the mold. So now that, um, That's you, important to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and then sometimes silicone will gather up again, and it can reform another capsule if there's a lot of silicone in the chest wall. And it can also gather up in nodules that um, are usually tender, and we go in there, and there's this hardened kind of nodular. Uh, and if you cut into the nodule, it's sticky, you know, so you know there's silicone in it. But the body will gather up silicone again. So people who have extensive ruptures often need several chest, what we call chest wall cleanouts later on, usually five years in between. And more lymph nodes may gather up silicone. So it can be a real mess. And um, mm. that's, uh, that's with silicone. Saline's a little bit easier. It's um, a lot less uh, messy to get to get that out. Gotcha. And in, so in my you, case, I had silicone first, and right. then saline after. But what we had discovered is the surgeon, when he replaced my my silicone and put saline mm-hmm. in, he did not remove the capsule. He did a capsulotomy, right. and then right. just put the new implant in. Right. Wait, were you ruptured or just leaking at that time? I, I wasn't. Well, I don't know. Um, it was really just because um, the the girl that I used to work with at the plastic surgeon's office, she had called me and said, hey, mm-hmm. because we have silicone and they put a ban on it, or which now I know is a moratorium that they had put on it, a moratorium mm-hmm. on it, they are letting us get our implants exchanged for free, and you can get some right. saline implants. So I just did the exchange. Yeah. But I don't know what my other implants look like or anything. Mm-hmm. Right, that's true. Well, um, most doctors don't, or most plastic surgeons don't realize that silicone leaks out. Uh, usually, it doesn't leak out right away, but um, it can leak out uh, either with trauma. Like I see, if you get a bunch of trauma, say from a car accident, and it hits one implant you'll see that it's leaked a lot more than the other one has when you do the um, explantation. You know, and the gram weight's different. It's a lot less. Um, so trauma will make it leak out, and heat will make it leak out. I've had cooks that have their implant near something really hot, and that implant will leak silicone out. It's very interesting. We tell people not to do infrared saunas before they, um, if they have silicone in because... Okay. Heat makes silicone leak. Well, it makes sense. I mean, you know. It, well, it does. It, do, it absolutely does. Yeah, it's From, a plastic. 
Yeah, just so. like the uh, saline, um, rising the temperature of saline to past 77 degrees. They said after two weeks, it's no longer sterile. And I'm sitting there going, well, if that's the case, how come we're told that we've got sterile water in us? Well, they're assuming that the valve is secure. I think if the valve was secure, it would stay sterile. It's only when the valve um, becomes leaky that bacteria and fungal elements can get in there. So um, the real danger is when women get exposed to mold. Let me give you some examples. Um, I had uh, most of most of the women are exposed to mold in their house or at work or in their car, but a few have been exposed with scuba diving. You know the mold in the scuba diving equipment. Uh-huh. Um, a few have been exposed with eating mold in like moldy bread, and it got into their right. gut and then got into their bloodstream and landed on their implant. Um, if you have mold in your house, um, a lot of times the people will be affected with sinus and lung problems. But if you've got, if you're part of the 25% of the population that can't get rid of the mold biotoxin, then uh, you'll develop a fibromyalgia type illness where you'll get really extreme fatigue and mental clouding and blurred vision, nausea, headache, and weird neurological stuff. Actually, pretty soon after you get exposed to the mold. And you don't have, you're just breathing in the mold biotoxin. And not all mold is toxic. There, there's to, there are toxic molds especially mm-hmm. aspergillus, and um, there's a couple other ones that are very toxic. But most mold is not that toxic. So um, that's why you do mold plates to see if the mold in your house is, especially in Georgia and Florida, you're going to have mold in your house, uh, if the mold in your house is toxic. Uh, mm-hmm. But the women who get sick from their breast implants generally belong to that 25% of the population that can't get rid of the biotoxin. And they have it. We have to figure out where they got exposed to mold and eliminate that source as well as um, get it out of their chest wall, remove the capsule, and then do the antifungals and the biotoxin detox. So it's kind of complex. And and the problem is that when things are complex, especially when they involve things like mold and yeast and, and chemicals and toxicity, which regular doctors don't understand, they just take that as the opportunity as... Um, as occurred on the doctors uh, that you saw, to just say, oh, it wasn't really your implants. You want to you want to um, tell the audience a little bit about that experience? <laughs> well, no, that's what they do, um, and they did it to well, you. The, they did it they, to you. They did. They, they, <laughs> they did. They told I know. Paul and I that we could speak freely. We could come on there. They told us we could bring as many women as we wanted. And then when they realized that we were serious about bringing other people with us, they quickly shut that down and said, well, the women can show up and we'll have a place for them to sit, but we're, you know, we're not paying Mm -hmm. for them to come. And so that changed immediately. Once we were there, we were in hair and makeup, finished hair and makeup, and we go back to the waiting area. And a producer came to get us. And as they're walking us down, as soon as we get to the stage and they're actually putting the microphones on us, they go, oh, by the way, you and Paula are not sitting on stage together. Paula, we have a place on the front row for you. Mm-hmm. At that moment, we knew that something shifted and they were not going to let us speak freely, but we didn't know what right. they were going to do. Right. Um, none of the doctors introduced themselves to us. They literally said, and whatever they say at the beginning of their show, welcome to the doctor show, and the doctors walk out on stage. And then they have mm-hmm. me and Paula go walk. And I never even said hello to any of them. And then right. they start 
the story, they did my backstory, which I think mm-hmm. the women got more from my backstory than they did from the actual interview. Right. Yeah. And um, Dr. Orden kept interrupting, whether it be me or one of the other doctors. And if they were to play the whole thing, I believe they taped 27 to 34 minutes, something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. And they only air approximately nine, and that's including the minute and a half of my backstory. Mm-hmm. And as he kept interrupting, if they were to show the whole tape, they would see me raising my hand, trying to get a word in. So they right. had to. Pro- they probably had a few areas where I noticed in the clip they show one or two times the same clip. As the voices are speaking, it's different. They just kind of flash to the doctor, probably because I kept raising my hand because I was trying to get a word mm-hmm. in. But right. what I loved was when the, he went to interview you. He kept trying to interrupt you, and you would just keep on talking. I was like, I love That's it. Right. <laughs> I'm just but calm, they, and I keep on. But, uh-huh, you know, and, but the thing is, so, they, they tried yeah. to focus on you. They only wanted to focus on you have an implant. They didn't want to hear the I rest know. of the things from I know. you. Well, the funny, the funny thing for me was when they, uh, one of the uh, doctors asked me a question, and then the plastic surgeon butted in and answered it incorrectly, which I love. The, the question was, is it normal to have bacteria in the chest wall? You know, that was that was the essence of the question. And because she was GYN, I think, and she didn't know because yes. you can have bacteria in the uterus. You know, that's OK. Yeah. Because, you know, it's to the outside. Um uh, I mean, not a lot of bacteria, but, you know, if you did a swab in the uterus and grew up some bacteria, would you be concerned? Probably not as much as the chest wall. And what I was going to say is, no, it absolutely is not normal. And he jumped in, the plastic surgeon who was a know-it-all and actually knows nothing about breast implant disease, um, basically said, oh, yes, that's totally normal, which I was laughing about because, you know, it it's just not. It's, it was well. The question was posed to me, and then he jumps in and answers it, which I think is, mm-hmm. is quite rude. So the doctors, um, the doctors, basically implied at the end that that um, because you didn't get well, you or you or um, Paula didn't get completely well, that it might not have been your implants. That was the implication, anyway. And that is what that is what a lot of doctors believe. That's what most plastic surgeons believe, that because, well, the disease is so complex. We just went through the complexity of the right. disease. It's way beyond anything that the, these doctors can even grasp or understand. They can't. They just can't get their minds around it. They they don't have the basic medical knowledge about what's going on. They don't, they don't study tox, toxicology. They don't study, you know, fungal disease. They don't know anything about intracellular infections. So um so they can't uh they can't grasp what we're talking about and, right. and how it takes time to get over the co infections and it certainly takes time to detox. And and when people are deathly ill they can't you just can't detox them. If you try to detox them, what happens? They get sick. They get sicker, right? Right? Yeah. <laughs> right, they get sicker. They get the exactly. Exactly. So things have to be done very, very slowly. So, um, and then you've got additional toxicities because you're dealing with women with uh, detoxification defects. They also have heavy metal and and other chemical toxicities. Mm -hmm. So you're not just detoxing the chemicals that are in the silicone or in the shell of the saline. So um, it becomes very, very complex. And, you know, a lot of my work is intuitive. A lot of the time 
um, I've had two patients, I want to mention this, I've had two patients, one recently that had saline implants, and the first one would have anaphylactic reactions whenever anybody hugged her, and then the second one, whenever I tried to treat her with antifungals, developed anaphylactic reactions. So the first one was proven to have penicillamine in her implant, and I believe the second one does too, although we're, um, we'll have to wait and check it later. But basically, a, a mold called penicillium, which produces penicillin, mm-hmm. can be deadly in a woman who's allergic to penicillin. Yes. So that's a that's an example of how difficult things can be with with the detox and the and killing off the mold without you know causing the patient to go into anaphylaxis. And that's interesting that you say that because I actually had a anaphylactic reaction to penicillin when I was 17. Mm-hmm. So we've always, you know, know, not to do it. So you were lucky and that I don't, that wasn't growing in your implant. Well, they had tested me, uh-huh. and now it shows up that I have an antibody to it. Mm-hmm. And it's just weird because I was like, well, now I have an antibody to it? And so... Somebody had tested me at one point, and it came back that I do react to penicillin. And it was just I'm weird sure because I was like, well, what? I don't understand. And I mm-hmm. just didn't know if if it was present, if it was slow well, enough will, going in and out of my body that it caused me to all of a sudden form some immunity to it. Well, you would have gotten exposed to penicillin in other ways, like in other um, uh Often in, like, food can be, um, certain animal products can have penicillin mm-hmm. and other, other there can be exposures to penicillin in, through other means that we're not even aware of. Right. But, yeah. But you could have had penicillin in your, in your implants. I mean, it's possible. But usually if it was a lot of it, you would have had, had an anaphylactic reaction when we tried to, you know, when we tried to treat you, so... But anyway, um, so this is the, this is really the problem, man. The problem is that disease is way too complex for the simplistic minds of the physicians, and they're always going to say, the, "This is what the plastic surgeons say." Well, I've explanted lots of patients, but they didn't get well afterwards, so it wasn't their implants. Do you see how simplistic mm-hmm. that is? Yes, especially if they left the capsule in and just yes. the capsulotomy. Yes. Yeah, Dr. Blaze, who's a, a Canadian biochemist who used to work at Health Canada, which is the equivalent of the FDA, says the disease is in the capsule. And you can actually study biofilms. Biofilms are um, little communities of of different uh, viruses and bacteria and intracellular bacteria and, and fungi that form a little community and, and become resistant to treatment. So there's there's textbooks on biofilms and Plastic surgeons are beginning to understand biofilms a little bit, but not really how to treat them. Uh, the best way is to remove them by removing the capsule, just so you don't have to deal with them. Mm-hmm. So, now you um, and Anne have uh, created a support uh, system for women. You want to tell the listening audience about that? Yes, um, Paula. Um, Paula, oh, Paula Blaze and I. Paula. That's okay. You're just because you're talking to me. <laughs> um, yeah. Paula, right. Paula Blaze and I um, met online, and we decided that 
we needed to do something. And we ended up getting a hold of um, Kathleen Anakin, who her, along with um, Sybil Goldrich, um, went against the FDA back in the day for the um, uh, Dow, Bristol-Myers, 3M. And we got a hold of Kathleen, and she was so touched by Paula's voicemail that she called us back and had a very long conversation with us. And she said, even though I'm no longer in an active fight against this myself, I'm more than happy to fill you ladies in. Mm-hmm. And she gave us a lot of information. So Paula and I um, were talking about different things. And we said, well, let's call the FDA. She told us who to ask for, who to speak with, and we're just going to call the FDA and uh, find out, you know, how we can get up there and get a hearing. So we called. Mm-hmm. We're all gung-ho about everything. And the lady on the other end goes, okay, well, what committee are you with that you want to go talk to the FDA? And we're like, well, we're, we're on a committee. This committee. is the Danzig Horn and Paula Blades. And she right. goes, she kind of giggled, and it was kind of cute. She mm-hmm. wasn't rude, not by any means. Mm-hmm. She was actually very sweet. But she kind of giggled, and she goes, oh, you can't just be people coming up here. You have to be um, with a committee. Right. So Paula and I were like, oh, okay. So we were like, well, now we got to find a committee. So we hung up the phone, and we started talking. And my blog that I had started was sitting up on the computer. And the mm-hmm. name of my blog was theimplanttruth.blogspot.com. And Paula and I were talking. She's like, well, who can we get? And I was like, I don't know. I said, well, we can just form our own committee. So I said, well, let's pray about it. And Paula said, okay. So we were praying. And um, after we prayed about it and said, okay, what are we going to do? When I opened my eyes, my eyes only saw T-I-T, the implant truth. Right. And I said, Paula, I said, my blog's acronym is TIT. She goes, huh? And I said, well, we're survivors. I said, won't we be the tits committee? And she goes, goes, oh, my God, I love it. I said, well, at least people will know what we're about. Right. Good publicity. (laughs) Yeah. So we ended up forming um, the tits committee, and we went public with it uh, on Facebook. And some women were like, no, I'd be offended by that. And other women laughed and giggled with us, And um, Mm -hmm. especially when they hear the story. And... We ended up doing that, and um, then we said, well, you know, sometimes you got to be a nonprofit to get some other things done, so we, we formed mm-hmm. it and um, got it. It took us a long time. I don't know why it took so long to get the nonprofit. We sat there for, I think, a year and a half with our application yes, uh, with the IRS, which they said yeah. we could still function as a nonprofit. We just mm-hmm. kind of had to wait for the official announcement, but we, would, we could function as long as we were filed. So right. it took a year and a half, but we did finally achieve it, and we have the nonprofit, and we ended up getting, um, with the help of women's donations and um, everything, we got National Breast Implant Awareness Month, and it's in March of every year now. Great. Is there uh, any contact information you want to give about the the committee? Um, we do have a website, which we are making a new one. We are in the process of making a new one, but the mm-hmm. old one is still up, and the new one will still have the same um, route to get there. So it's www.titscommittee.org, mm-hmm. and make sure you put O-R-G. And you're currently working on getting um, this information to uh, legislatures, right? Or yes, legis- we have people been, in the legislature. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We um, 
and there's other women that are working trying to get FDA hearings and stuff like that. Paula and I have taken it more on the local state side. We know mm-hmm. that there's four states um, that have informed consent, and we're trying to get informed consent for our state. So Paula's in right. Kentucky, I'm in Florida, but then we have women in other states who are also working with us. So we're kind of networking with several senators at this moment. And mm-hmm. with it being an election year, they already told us, you know, the presidency election yeah. took precedent. Right. And then now this election and then after this election is when we were told right. that we've had enough information, had enough meetings that we hope that we can move forward with several states now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the um, the thing that was interesting to me, I, I had written my book, The Naked Truth About Breast Implants, in 2009, and it was published in early 2010. And I went back to look at articles published since then in the peer-reviewed literature, and there was mm-hmm. at least 50 articles, which was way more than was before, Right. Um, with a whole bunch of stuff on autoimmune disease or Asia, it's ASIA syndrome, mm-hmm. um, and a bunch of stuff on mold and um, other uh, other things. Now, I don't think anybody's really put together the what we just described in in, in that kind of detail. You know, there's an article here on this, an article here on that, and you know, silicone is definitely an adjuvant and there's a there's a articles where yeah you know we found mold inside a breast implant in this case report, but what's lacking is um, a, the understanding of this disease so that you can do intelligent studies. That's really what's lacking in my in yeah. my opinion. Um, an article came out in the Annals of Surgery recently looking at just under ten thousand patients and. Uh, looking at the side effects, I can tell you, you know, I can go through and tell you what the neurological ones are. It's either chemical neurotoxins or biotoxins that are neuro- neurological toxins. There's fibromyalgia, of course, which is usually due to yeast and mold biotoxins. There's um, uh, autoimmune disease, which is usually due to the adjuvant effect, especially in certain HLA types. Um, so I can go down and, and talk about what all the symptoms are and how they relate back to the defective breast implant. But um, medical, I mean, the plastic surgeons in medical science have no clue. They really do not understand. Um, most plastic surgeons deny that neurological disease is even a part of breast implant disease, even though it was a major section in the California settlement, which is which is really amazing to me mm-hmm. that, that they don't. But it's because they can't. They don't know why. Nobody's come forth to explain why. I explain it in my book, but of course that's not something that the plastic surgeon is going to read. So um, that's a problem. And one thing that I will say, and I don't know if you have had the opportunity to see it or not. Um, Have you watched The Bleeding Edge? Yes, I did. Okay. I thought it was really interesting and important to point out to viewers. If you haven't seen it, I do recommend it. If you have seen it, I think one of the most important takeaways was when that orthopedic surgeon, he himself had to have a hip implant placed, and Mm -hmm. he experienced many of the same things that a lot of breast implant women experience. Yeah, but his is cobalt. His is one thing. Okay. Exactly. Cobalt toxicity, which guess what, can be measured with what a cobalt level. Okay. Now. We can't, we can't 
do the kind of testing. We can't just order a chemical test, a uh, methyl ethyl ketone level or, uh, you know, a, a, um, uh, any of the 30 chemicals there. Um, it's, the, the toxicology is quite complex in silicone. Mm-hmm. And some people oh, yeah. have silicone toxicity, and some people just have chemical toxicity, and some people just have biotoxicity, and some people have everything. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's the problem. When you have one thing, you can prove it. And he did a good job oh. proving it. Of course, he yeah. had to almost die to do it. Mm-hmm. And it worked. In other words, the FDA then took them off the market. And But I don't, I don't think most doctors know when somebody with a hip implant presents with these neurological symptoms that they should look for cobalt poisoning. I don't think it's widely known, even among orthopedic surgeons, which I is agree. a shame. Well, yeah. So they they really should put out warnings and that, you know, that everybody has to read. Um, I know mm-hmm. they do put out FDA warnings. So they do, but that doesn't mean that people read them. Or the doctors point them out. And I like the fact that he took the stance to say, had it not happened to me myself, yeah, I don't know if I would have believed believe my patients. Right. And yeah. you know, for him to own up to that, that was to me very powerful. And I was like, that's that's what it is. Is it had to happen to him for mm-hmm. him to go? Okay, as soon as my patients say that they're having one of these issues, I need to pay mm-hmm. attention to that. Well, the odd thing with me is that I've had surgeons have breast implant disease, and they're still in denial after explant. Oh, my goodness. I know. It's really amazing to me. They get their implants out, but they're still in denial that their implants made them sick. Wow. So um, just know that, and and that's true of non I mean, regular patients, too. You know, there, there's, um, there's women that say that their arthritis and their fatigue is not due to their implants, mm-hmm. yet they go get their implants out because they're ruptured. And then uh-huh. they get better, but but they're still saying, "Oh, it wasn't in my implant." So th- that kind of denial is is across the board in patients as well. It's only the patients that seek to educate themselves, especially when they want to find out why they're ill, and mm-hmm. put it together before surgery. You know that. But if you just happen to get your implant out because it's ruptured, and your doctor says, "Yeah, it has to come out now," and you have to, or you have to change it out, you know, because it's ruptured. But yet they've got all the list of everything, you know, just everything. They've got 15 positive things, and they're telling me it's not. It's not. I call it the yes but syndrome. Um, you know, they have they have sinus. Yes, but I have allergies. You have arthritis. Yes, but my mom has arthritis. Yes, but you know. So I go through all the symptoms with them, and they're in total denial that it's their implants. So. You know, mm-hmm. what do you do? They're not going to do the detox program. They're not going to take the antifungals. They're not going to do anything because it's not it's not that. It's something else. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting. It's it's an interesting thing that we we have come across. And I wish it. When I watched the Bleeding Edge, I said, Oh, if implant disease was only that simple, if it was <laughs> only one thing, we would have handled it by now. Yeah. But. Um, we haven't. Well, we're coming up on the end of our hour. Would you like to give the contact information again for your committee? Absolutely. So it's the Implant True Thrivers Committee, also known as TITS Committee, www.titscommittee.org is our website. 
We have a Facebook page as well. Just go to the Implant Truth Survivors Committee Facebook. And if you need to reach out to us, please reach out. Um, we have information that we post on there. And we're happy to see if we can assist you in any way. Great. And Anne has written a book, Perfection, A True Life Story. Sometimes perfection isn't the truth at all. This chronicles her journey throughout this this mess, including the formation of the TITS Committee. And um, hopefully, uh, I know you, you've had many, many health challenges. I, I know your history. And I also know the challenges that we had um, during your treatment process. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm hoping that you have, you have, I'm glad to hear that you've gotten some thyroid and some other things handled this year. That's very, that's very promising. Oh, yes. It was, you know, it's touch and go. Um, and that's another thing that I, I like about your practices. It's not just you. You also have the general physician is in there who can mm-hmm. assist as well to give us the other right. knowledge that we need on our um, hormones and uh, thyroid and um, anything else. So I, I like that. It's all-inclusive, and you also have the nutritional supplements that help to get us detoxed. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Anne. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Um, always a pleasure to speak with you as well. So this is Dr. Susan Kolb. We've been speaking with Ann Ziegenhorn, her book, Perfection, A True Life Story. Next week, we will be interviewing Tricia McCannon, Star Knowledge. Please join us next week.